Hey everybody, how's it going? Uh, this is your host, Michael Unterberg, and you are listening to Jerusalem News Podcast, JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge, where we keep you connected to what's going on here in Israel, so you have an ongoing feeling of connection and understanding beyond the headlines. I am here, as always, with co-host Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? It's going uh, pretty good, Mike. Back in Israel. I believe you. Uh, we are actually here in the office today, which you would think would mean great audio, but you may hear banging as they're doing uh, shiputzim here. Shiputzim are uh, uh, refurbishing, but I think the banging is is Benjamin um, putting together a cabinet or something. Oh. Well, there's all sorts of things going on here in the office today. So uh, once again, you'll have to uh, filter us out the uh, side noise, which I think I think our mics work pretty well for that. Um, today. We really wanted to jump in and talk about a sort of side tangential issue to the big news story, uh, both in America and Israel. I'm surprised, actually, at how big it is in Israeli papers, uh, the events in Charlottesville and the political reaction to it. Why are you surprised? I mean, Nazis make huge, huge news in Israel. The littlest incident in Europe hits the front pages of... Uh... Well, I'm not surprised that uh, Israeli media is covering Nazi stuff. I'm surprised that the Israeli media has been saying, why is it taking so long for Israeli politicians to respond to these events and to... I, I don't know why Israeli politicians are bound to comment on things in America. Um, well, I think for one thing, everybody in the international scene has been commenting on it. So people want to hear from their leaders. Like, what do you think about that? What happens in America affects the world. You know, America, you know, is still the great one superpower that exists in the world. What happens there is seen as a leader in the world. So you're saying Israeli leaders are conspicuous by their absence, that most world leaders have responded to this? I guess that's just why I was confused. I think so. I mean, at least when I, I, I think that that's what the perception is, at least. I mean, that world leaders are responding to it. And where do you stand on it? And specifically, since it does have to, I mean, I would go to the next step. We're talking something that affects the Jewish people. And Israel takes as its leadership, we are the representatives of the Jewish people. So if you have groups that are going, marching through Virginia saying, we'll replace the Jews or whatever they're... No, doing. Jews will not replace us. Oh, sorry, something like that. <laughs> I try and make things... Alan, you got to learn your rhetoric correctly. Exactly. I, I try and turn spin everything positive. You know, we'll replace the Jews instead of it's uh, negative. Um, so we're saying, okay, if we're, if our, if we're supposed to be the, world, the, the place that's the Jewish national home and this is a direct threat against Jews... So how is, how are the Jewish leaders responding? Can we can we demystify anti-Semitism? I think that uh, it's possible. I, I I do think it's possible. I think people are confused by this incredible long-standing hatred, which seems to cross all sorts of borders. That bigotry and racism is a generic term, but we are the only people that I know of that have our own special term for everybody hating us, the Jews. Like most people, if you hate black people or Irish people or Catholics or, or Chinese people, you're a racist and a bigot. But if you hate Jews, you're an anti-Semite. It gets its own special word. Why, why is that such a powerful... Aren't we lucky? Aren't we lucky? Yeah. I mean, the origins of the word itself are, are 19th century Europe, uh-huh. right? And Jews... 78, the term was coined. The term was, 1878, yeah. The term was coined. 
And it, why, why was the term anti-Semitism coined? Why is that the term for Jews? Because, again, it was part of their racial um, history. It was a redefining, you could say, of hatred of Jews. Traditional anti-Semitism, we call it a traditional hatred of Jews, um, at least in the Middle Ages, was religious-based. We, we, re- we rejected Jesus, and therefore we deserve to be second-class citizens, at least in the European world. Again, in terms of the Muslim world, so we were Dimi status, second-class status, because we didn't accept Muhammad. Um, that was, you know, you could say, so classic hatred of Jews was based on religion. Theoretically, if you converted and accepted Jesus, you would no longer be um, hated. Again, that didn't always happen. Like we know with the Spanish Inquisition, even those those who converse, conversos were kept separate and, and um, uh, which we call it, oppressed um, afterwards. But theoretically, that was the idea behind it. Theoretically, there's an escape route. There's an, there's a, there's a exit door right. to the anti-Semitism. Exactly. And then the new racial pseudoscience of the 19th century that comes along and then defines Jews and others, but Jews, which is particularly talking about anti-Semitism, as a race. So now, okay, so what's that race? So that race is Semite. And now, what's if you're semi, and that's a race? So now, we, we anti-Semitism becomes the hatred of that of that race, and na- and now, and then that gets conver- or perversed ultimately in the Nazi ideology that there is no out. That's why you can murder a baby. That's why. That's why even if you convert, there were churches in the Warsaw Ghetto where Catholics went to pray because they were defined as part of the Jewish race in the Nazi racial ideology. So they, they, they didn't even identify themselves. We're not talking about those who tried to hide because they were trying to get away from it. They did not identify themselves as Jews, but the, the Nazis did, and they put them in the ghettos and, and murdered them along with the rest of the Jews as Jews because you cannot escape a racial identity. And it's a really interesting multi-step process because in Europe you have the movement towards enlightenment where you move from the, you know, what we used to call the dark ages of the Middle Ages, where religious preconception world, we're entering a new rational age, where religion will not be our determining social factor. So we will emancipate the Jews and make them full citizens. And science is a determining factor. Science and rationality. So once that mutates into a new, that, that movement, which was to the benefit of the Jews, then mutates into a final solution based on pseudoscience, which is there to stamp the Jews. So what, in theory, was proposed to end anti-Semitism actually gave anti-Semitism its greatest victory, I guess is a perverse way to refer to the Holocaust, but it is an enormous victory for anti-Semitism, the murder of a third of the Jewish nation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, wasn't you know that, that, that certainly was, uh, look, a, a success. Yeah. "Quote unquote" in their in their eyes, and that's why one could argue that even you know in 1945, as the Germans are have clearly lost, um, and the war's quite not over, they're still trying to murder the Jews. Um, they're 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 sending resources to kill Jews that could be sent to the front to yeah. minimize losses militarily, but they're rushing. They're diverting resources for the military to kill as many Jews as possible before the war ends. And the reason for it is that is because that is part and parcel of the goals of the war. That's part of their goals. So if that's your goal, so you're going to continue to fight that goal just like you're fighting along the front. It's not a secondary Nazi goal. It's a primary Nazi goal along with Lebensraum and conquering all the areas. Because it goes within their, their ideology of, of 
of of conquering Europe has to be also destroying the Jews. Well, if you define the Jew as a cancer, then you have to eliminate that cancer by whatever means. That becomes a priority. I, I uh, but the, and an interesting thing again, what what we see rises in the same at the same time is this not of this redefinition of anti-Semitism of anti of Jew hatred is the rise of Zionism, which is. Partly a response to this new kind of anti-Semitism. Certainly, Herzlian Zionism is a response to anti-Semitism because they see that they are not able to be accepted as a nation like all other nations. And so, Herzl says the only way we'll be able to do that is when we have our own national homeland. So that, to a certain extent, and I don't mean this in a negative way, just as a, I'm just going to say it clearly. To a certain extent, anti-Semitism, the other side of the anti-Semitism coined from the Jewish perspective is Zionism. In other words, anti-Semites don't want Jews living in their countries. And Zionism says, you're right. We shouldn't live in your country. We should live in our country. So there is a certain uh, ideological coherence between the two positions. And that's why historically you did have a level of collaboration is maybe a harsh word. Collusion is the, the term du jour. Well, people certainly don't like to talk about the trade, the people, you know, the trade deals with the Nazis in the early 30s, um, where Nazis would let Jews go to Palestine um, and trade for money and, and goods during the boycotts of Germany. And they really don't like to talk about Eichmann's offer to the Jewish agency to trade Jews for yeah. money and goods. During the Holocaust, yeah, that's late. That's much later. That's 1944 already. Yeah, yeah. Um, even though, and even over in 1943, there were Jews even who suggested that. Um, Look, you, it goes earlier than that. When Herzl in 1902 or three goes to meet with the minister, uh, the the foreign minister of the Tsarist regime in Russia, Pobodinestov, who's a guy who wants to eliminate the Jewish problem in Russia, one third through uh, assimilation, one third through emigration, one third through death. And Herzl goes to meet with them to get that one third to, to you know, to Palestine. And the, the the this is met at the Zionist Congress with real pain. How can you talk to this guy who is killing? You know, he's he's sort of overseeing this pogrom, at least in the background of the pogrom movement. And you're meeting with him, and Herzl's like, "I got to get you guys out of there." Yeah, so I mean, it, the, there's no doubt that anti-Semitism and, and Zionism are movements that are are um, in, in, intricately linked. Um, even though there are those uh, who you know clearly show that there was anti-Semitism throughout the Middle Ages, and Jews didn't make a, a move to the state, so it's not purely anti-Semitism which sparked Zionism. Because if it was purely anti-Semitism, why didn't a Zionist movement grow up? A strong Zionist movement grow up in the 13th, 14th century, when there was also tremendous, or after the Spanish or during the Spanish Inquisition, in the at the end of the 15th century. So it's clearly a number of different. Uh, um, uh, things <laughs> factors like nationalism is probably a big one nationalism also the the, the idea of nationalism that's that's going with anti-Semitism again when we're talking about nationalism more in a more today nationalism is seen as a very uh, often as a negative um, but it certainly wasn't then in the 19th century well, I think that's part of when you say you know let's look to both sides for blame it depends on which side if the principles of one side are are good to help and build and 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 the principles of one are to hurt and harm so even if there is a certain agreed upon s- set of concepts but the but one is evil and one is good yeah 
So, so the nationalism, the anti-Semitism, and the, the whole concept of the Enlightenment, uh, you know, all of these are leading to, to Zionism for sure in the, in the end of the 19th century and 20th century. Um, but the, what's, what we look at, I mean, for, for many of those in the Zionist movement across the board, it was like clear, like once we would have a state, that would be the end of anti-Semitism. Ah. Uh, and people say, and now we see that it's not true. Right, and we do see it's not true. It's I disagree. I think that that I think that the hypothesis has not yet been tested. So tell tell us more about that, Mike. Okay, well, I, before we get to that, and, and that's Herzl's hypothesis that once that once we have a state, that will end anti-Semitism. Yeah. That anti-Semitism itself is a diaspora beast. Uh, and not only Herzl alone, I think it was... Oh, for sure not. Yeah, yeah, we're just using Herzl as the emblem of this ideology of secular Zionism. But the argument, I mean, Pinsker makes it very articulately. Pinsker argues that if you have a people spread around the world, no plans on leaving, uh, it, it, they forgot they're a nation, it, it's, not, it's even worse than when you have a guest stay in your house too long. They're not part of your family. They shouldn't be living there, but they're staying too long, and you lose patience with them. He said it's worse. What he describes it as is if a nation or a people living in a land, then when you take the people out of the land, they assimilate because the nation's dead. If you have a, a, a people who won't assimilate when they're out of their land, that's the equivalent, he says, of taking a soul out of a body. That's, that's death. Taking people out of their land is death of the nation. Taking a soul out of body is death of the individual. Well, if anyone would encounter a ghost, they'd be terrified. And so people are terrified of us. He called it Judeophobia. They are freaked out by us. They call us a ghost people. Yeah. We're a ghost people and we're not even so aware of it. So of course they're afraid and repulsed, which eventually leads to hatred and wanting to drive us out. Now, for that diagnosis. And therefore, if that's the diagnosis, then the prescription is Zionism. Then we have to act like a regular nation. If, if we're not going to assimilate, then we have to reintegrate and be a normal nation living in our homeland. And, and Herzl's, and that's the, the, the lesson Herzl learns at Dreyfus, is that they're not going to let us assimilate. Right. <laughs> so even if we want to assimilate, it's not possible. Right. That's Herzl's conclusion, right? Which many people disagreed with, but that was Herzl's conclusion, right? We're not going, Herzl's conclusion is we're not going to assimilate even if we want to. My question to you is this. Wouldn't that mean that anti-Semitism begins in the diaspora? Uh, Pinsker to be right. So let me reframe the question. I, think, I mean, I think that's true. I think anti-Semitism is in the, in the um, diaspora. And I think that people who come along and try and recreate the Hanukkah story or the Romans as anti-Semites, it's just the same thing and another thing, is a very is just wrong. Let me put the question a different way. Let's go back to the Bible, okay? The Philistines are probably people from the... Indo-European, somehow, you know, like uh, cousins of the Greeks who come in the 12th, 13th century BCE, something like that. They, uh, they take the coastland, the southern, southwestern coast of Israel, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, and they cause major problems for the Jews or the Israelites, I guess, until King David arises and Vanquishes. vanquishes them after a series of you know decades and decades of battles with them really being on top it's david who finally defeats them the philistines were the enemies of david's kingdom and of the saul's kingdom and of the tribal uh judges 
you know, Israelite community. Were they anti-Semites? No, I think not. I mean, you can correct me, but I think the paradigm for anti-Semites in the Bible is Amalek. When does Amalek attack Am Yisrael? Uh, oh, hold on. I think Amalek is the rabbinic symbol of anti-Semitism. I don't think the Bible presents them as anti-Semites. I'm saying that how the rabbinics take them because they attack Am Yisrael in Chutzlarts. They keep talking outside of Israel. They attack they attack, uh, you know, the Israelites as they're... So do the Ammonites and the Moabites. They attack us on the, on, the, on the eastern side of the Jordan River before we're in our homeland. They don't want to let us through. Right. We end up fighting wars with them. We end up denying them conversion. Yeah, and I think in terms of, again, the rabbinics put them in that light also. Certainly the, the medieval scholars like Rashi and those guys. The medieval scholars who are living, certainly, who are living in Crusader Europe... Absolutely, see anti-Semitism there. I more, want more to. The, I think more than the Philistines and those that we're fighting when we're already ensconced now. Why are they more anti-Semitic than the Philistines? Because we're in Philistines, we're fighting in our land when we're already set. We're you know we're conquering the land. I mean, I guess. Why is that not? Are, are, the Philistines it, are in the land in our land. Why are the Philistines attacking us? Well, because we're trying, we're trying to conquer our land, and they right. don't want us to. It's nothing to do with who we are. If we were, if we were, if we were Amorites, they would fight. And presumably, they did fight other people too, as did the Moabites, yeah, of course. as did the Ammonites, as did the Amalekites. Of course, it wasn't about us being Jews. It was about us being at a particular place at a particular time, and that's what the ancient world was. It was constant battles between us and them. And there was a whole series of us's and them's. We even in, in biblical times have this battle with the tribe of Benjamin and in, 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 in internal fratricidal war. We have it in, in the book of Samuel with that, right. the north and the south. There's a civil war. Yeah, I mean, it was a civil war after, right? I mean, after Shlomo Melech dies. It's- Civil war for hundreds of years. So, so not always. Sometimes, usually a cold war. But, yeah. but, but, yeah, cold war is a civil war. You know, but fighting us in our homeland or in, in the region over territory, I think in the definition is not anti-Semitism. In other words, I'll put it a different way. Uh, England has had wars. Did they, were the opponents of the English anti-British? In other words, do you hate British people to be at war with? When, when, when the Israelites fought wars, and in the Second Temple period, when the Judeans yeah. fight battles, is that because the people hated Jews as Jews? Or is it because, no, nations fight wars? Yeah, no, yeah, clearly I agree with you, yeah. Which means that it's not that, Jew, that Jews haven't always had conflicts. We do. But a normal nation has conflicts. It's only a diaspora people. A people outside of their homeland, gypsies, uh, for a long time African Americans who were seen as other within America. We don't, we don't say gypsies anymore. Romani. Roma Sinti. Yeah. Roma Sinti. Okay. Thank you. Uh, uh, these these people who don't have that's a it's a different kind of racism of minorities who are seen as other within, and no matter where they are, the only. So Roma Sinti, I think also it doesn't matter where they are because they have no, I think Kurds have a particular problem. The Jews since the, for 2000 years have had this particular problem in a way that crosses boundaries all over the world because our diaspora is so far flung. And so I think what Zionism's diagnosis is saying is, of course, if you are existing in the diaspora for 2000 years spread all over the world, 
They're going to hate you for being you, for being different. It's not over land anymore. You don't have a land. It's not a national battle anymore. They just hate you wherever you are. And you really begin to see the first, I think, if we define anti-Semitism this way, of discomfort of the host nations of the diaspora Jewish communities, if that's what we defined it, you really start to see that in the Roman, in the Roman era with Roman writings. Not only is there a fiscus Judaicus, a charge, a special tax on Jews who had to pay for citizenship, they didn't participate. They were allowed by the Romans to not participate in the polytheistic, so they had to have a special tax. I don't know that that's anti-Semitic. In other words, that's actually Roman society makes an accommodation of you. We allow you, similar to in the Western world today, in the Western world under the Greeks and the Romans, they made accommodations for Jews who didn't want to participate in what the Jews felt was idolatry. I mean, it was. But you see in Roman writing something else. You see these stories of the origins of the Jews as a, as a, as a disgusting, by the intellectuals, as a disgusting sick people that were rejected by Egyptian society. They were led into the desert by this guy Moses who followed a donkey out there. And that's why in their temple, the Jews have a secret statue of a donkey, which is the God they worship. Nobody else would worship a donkey, but the, but the, the Jews, the Jews, there are Romans writers who talk about the Eudeum fatentium. There's a particular stink of the Jew. And they argue that one out of every 10 Romans is a Jew. They're, They're Jews everywhere, which is probably impossible, but there's this sense of Jewish conspiracy that Jews are too many and you have riots against Jews in in Alexandria you have the rise of anti-semitism as a diaspora after the it, 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 it in other words it sees diaspora as a as and this is the anti, this is how i see anti-semitism the zionist version of anti-semitism it's a it's a diaspora uh phenomenon and that nations at home have conflicts Diaspora communities have racism and bigotry. And so we, because we are the only nation on earth to survive 2,000 years of exile, we have accrued an enormous background of racism and bigotry. That's why it gets its own name. Africans in the West only starts 400 years ago. So they're big, you know, there could be a term about anti-blackism, but it's, it's a much newer phenomenon because their diaspora is much younger. Right. So, uh, uh, so where does that leave us? Well, it leads us to to to, to the challenging Herzl's hypothesis. Right. So, uh, you're saying that that Herzl that we since we still have a majority of Jews that are in the diaspora, Herzl has not yet been. That's my argument. That's my argument. That what Herzl and Pinsker and those early Zionists were arguing was not that anti-Semitism will end when we have a state. It'll end when we renormalize. In other words, if with there are French people who don't live in France, there are Italian people who don't live in Italy, but there isn't an enormous Italian diaspora. There isn't an enormous French. There aren't communities all around the world that have center. There, there aren't French community centers, and you know what I mean, uh, all around the world. As long as there is a a, a a powerful diaspora Jewish community, the majority of the world's Jews live in diaspora. There will be anti-Semitism. It's as simple as that, according to the Zionist analysis. 
I, I, this is, this is the analysis that I think makes the most sense to me. And and to me, and that's why I said, to me, it demystifies the whole thing. So I'm not, I'm not sure this is a kasha, but it's a, a, it's a kasha. Sorry, a, a difficult question. Um, like challenging your, your, your idea here. But it's something that, um, that I'm struggling with, which is, we know today that much of anti Semitism, um, manifests itself as anti-Zionism. Mm-hmm. So how does that play into your um, trying to learn uh, that Herzl's has not yet been proven wrong or right? As the Jews begin to reassemble and rebuild their state, you will have detractors saying, don't let them do it. They are, they are a religious group. They're not a nation. Denying your, our national identity. What are they doing? How dare this religious group group claim to be a nation and try to take over a piece of land and oppress the indigenous people? Is a it is what you are talking about is the quintessence of this analysis. It is the it is the absolute denial that the Jews have the right to reassemble to normal nation status. It is it is the it is the it is. It is the next stage. You had the religious anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages. You have the racial anti-Semitism of the Holocaust. And now you have the national, the national anti-Semitism. We refuse to even allow you this. We refuse to even allow you to be Semites. It's the most unbelievable anti-Semitism ever in that it's saying you're not even Semites. You're essentially Europeans. Go back to Europe. Go back to Europe, white Europeans. You're not. You, this is the weirdest anti-Semitism at all that denies your Semitism. And then even goes to, to the point of denying roots in the, uh, you know, given historical fact and archaeological fact. Yeah, it denies it. Oh, you want to? Yeah, you have you have religious shrines there, but that's not a historical national connection. They say you're not even a nation. So what do you want me to no, do? Go further, denying that we even have shrines here. Yeah, that that, that it's that's a, it's all fiction. Well, that's a particular weird brand of anti-Semitism, and and you see it more, I think, in the Muslim world than in the. I don't, I don't, I don't think in the non-Muslim world you have denial that the Temple Mount. Is. Okay, but Nazism was a weird brand of yeah. anti-Semitism. I mean, most 19th century anti-Semites. Will be appalled by Nazism, <laughs> quite honestly. You know, e- even 20th century anti Semites were appalled by Nazism in the 1930s. I mean, you have you have plenty of people who were anti Semites, especially in Poland, who saved Jews because it was like it was way beyond. So. I find that hard to believe that you have anti Semites who saved Jews. You had to have people who had real anti Semites who saved Jews. Anti-Jews. I mean, what do we? I mean, you know, maybe they didn't love Jews. They may not have been Philo-Semites. They may not have had a deep love for and passion for Jews. But they were Christians who believed that all people were created equal and should be treated equally. They had a whatever their feelings were. They had they were principled people who saved Jews. You don't risk your you risk your life over a principle. I don't know that I would call that person an anti-Semite. We all have a a tribal discomfort with people who are different than us. But if you saved a Jew, I don't I don't think I could call you an anti-Semite anymore. I would call that heroic. 100%. Yeah, one hundred percent. So, my point is, is that there was those who, who, who did not. There were those who do. It, it, the, the Nazism was a specific, you know, became a aberrant brand, like brand of uh, of anti-Semitism that 
Many, well, many, it was a much bigger thing than just anti-Semitism. It was a national fascist movement to turn Germany into a, exactly. into a militaristic destruction machine of anything in its path. So, uh, the, I mean, Nazism is its own weird. My, no, no, my, no, but my, the, my is just because you have these weird brands of like anti-nationalism, right. Jewish <laughs> now, right? Zionism doesn't mean that that's not something that will, you know take on much greater force. I don't know that it won't. And, and, and it's also, it ends also with final solution. In other words, if I can't reconstitute and live in my homeland, then you're dooming me to constant, uh, first of all, your otherness and, and never any security. You're, 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 to the obscurity of oblivion of assimilation, to destruction, to we, anyone who's concluded from the Holocaust that diaspora Jewry is a problem for the Jews which I think is probably a lot of people, not just Jews, denying my ability to live in my own nation under self-rule, which is the right of any nation, is, is such a... I understand your question because it seems like, well, but you can be your religion. I don't care about your religion. But that's just it. It's, it's the final ditch of that old medieval paradigm of we hate you because you're religion. And the Nazis didn't care about your religion. And this anti-Semitism doesn't care about your religion. I don't have a problem with people being religious Jews. I have a problem with Jews standing up and, and asserting their national identity and reconstituting themselves as a free nation in their homeland. Liot am choshi to be a free nation in the homeland. By the way, that's the mistake that a lot of people made, I think, in America with this whole Linda Sarsour thing and, and raising money for the for the cemeteries that were overturned. Oh, she knows what she's doing when she raises yes. money to repair a Jewish cemetery, which, by the way, apparently the cemetery, I saw an article recently, said they've never seen the scent of it. Money. But public relation-wise, that's the movement. I don't have a problem no, with Jews. Why. Because why she, the, the problem with Linda says, Linda, what she's saying is, oh, I, I think destroying Jewish property or, or Jewish you know, synagogues in America is a terrible is a terrible thing. I mean, you're 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 destroying someone's religion. Everybody has the right to express their religion, right? And she's exactly doing that. She's separate. She's defining the Jews as a religion, not as a people. That doesn't. That has nothing to do. She would argue with Zionism, which is an evil, nationalist, colonialist, destructive, horrible thing. It's not. A, Zionism isn't about finding freedom. It's about destroying others. That's her argument. But the religion, I have no problem with the Jewish religion, and that is that is the weird. That is the weird nexus where Zionism is the, as the remedy to anti-Semitism. Now, finally, that gets attacked by anti-Semitism. It's it's the, the it's not the final solution of anti-Semitism, but it is the final attempt of anti-Semitism to eradicate the Jews in their ability to live free in their own homeland. Um, so, I guess we have to wait and see if Michael's right in terms of trying to defend Herzl and those who said that anti-Semitism would uh, would disappear with. Uh, with the nation, or um, is this is this impossible to demystify? And it's something, unfortunately, that the Jewish people are just simply going to always live with, which is there's this movement of hatred towards us. But it's tricky because what I'm what I'm arguing is that if you define it as hatred of if you define it as enmity towards the people who live in this land, then it's not anti-Semitism. It's just conflict, which happens. It happens in the first, happens in the second temple. If you define it as hating a diaspora wandering people, then as soon as you end the diaspora, it kind of isn't anti-Semitism anymore. So that the Herzl... So, so we, we have to wrap up. Yeah. But 
I mean, maybe we should continue this conversation more, but because one could still argue that as long as Israel itself is singled out differently than all of the other nations of the world, yeah. it wouldn't just be a land conflict. Uh, you know, yeah. and that would be the te- that would be the Nafkamina. That would be the test case that would prove or disprove my reading of the Herzl hypothesis. Um, I guess we'll have to wait and see. All right. Hopefully, I hope you're right. We should all live and be well and see who's right. Um, so, thank you everybody for listening. Please uh, pass uh, your recommendation along for our podcast. And if you can, give us some ratings on iTunes uh, and subscribe because that would be helpful to get more ears listening to our discussions. Thank you so much, Alan. And thank you, Mike. And welcome back. Bye-bye. This has been JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge podcast. Please check out our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org, for episodes, blog posts, and contact information. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you use for podcasts. But you knew that, right? Uh, you can follow our Facebook page at the Teachers Lounge Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ju Israel Gap. Please keep in touch with us with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions. And if you know somebody who would enjoy our podcast in general or an episode in particular, we love it when people recommend us. Thank you, guys.